just a moment. And as you're turning there, we are wrapping up today our series that we have called This Is Us as we've talked week by week about what it means for me and what it means for you to be part of God's family. And we looked at what it means for us to gather together our first week and then what it means for us to grow as disciples of Jesus Last week, we had the very difficult conversation about what it means to give of your time, of your talents, and of your treasures, not just of what's in your wallet, but of the person who is holding your wallet. And today, we're going to talk about what it means for us to go. What does it mean for us to see mission in the way that God seems to see mission? And we pick up in Acts chapter 2, our framework for the entire series, and the closing phrases of that give us some shape to how God sees the mission of the church, this family of God that he's put together, that he's united throughout history, that he's united globally. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, They were praising God and having favor among all the people, not just the people within, but the people outside of their gathering. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That God would give us a mission to see numbers added to the body. That God would give us a mission so that we would see and hope that others would come to faith in Jesus. Do you have a mission? All of us have a mission. Some of us had a mission on Thursday. Actually, lots of us had many missions on Thursday. For some of you ladies, and maybe some of you gentlemen, you woke up really early because you had to do something with a turkey. Whether you were going to deep fry it, or you were going to bake it, or you were going to boil it. Whatever you do with turkeys, you were going to do that. You were going to turkify that turkey for the Thanksgiving gathering. Midday, some of us had a mission, and that was to go from the gathering of our family around the table to make sure that our plate was full and we wanted to make sure that we tasted everything that was one of our favorite dishes. And your plate, more than likely, was more yellow than green. Am I right? (laughs) Some of us have a mission. And that's the post-meal sitting on the sofa or in our recliner taking a nap. And all of us have the mission of being grateful and thankful that someone would provide this bountiful feast that celebrates something that history may be miscommunicating. Some of us have a mission on Thursday. Because all day long we've been thinking about how grateful we are for our grandmother. That if she would pull all of the, pour all of her energy and effort into us. But come 6 o'clock at Target, no matter how thankful we were for our grandmother... We were ready to punch someone else's grandmother in the face for a pair of discount socks. We have a mission. A mission that drives us, that takes us from one place to the other. Jesus seems to give us a mission in Matthew chapter 28. And it seems this mission is not something that he has come up with in the moment. It is something that resonates from page 1 of the Bible until the very end. What is the mission that we have been given by this resurrected Jesus? Matthew 28, picking up in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, more than likely Thomas. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. The mission of every Christian is the Great Commission. So if you're a note taker, that's a great thing to to think through this week. The mission of every Christian is to see the Great Commission fulfilled as best as possible. So when we read through this, that we want to see God's Great Commission, we have to realize that, yes, it is beyond us to the ends of the earth, and that's the language that is used throughout much of Scripture, but it's also in front of you. The Great Commission is both beyond you and it's in front of you. It is with your neighbor, and it is to the other ends of the globe. It is Australia, it is Antarctica, it is all the other nations that start with A. It is everywhere. But it is right next door to you. One of the unique things about being in Lake Jackson is that we are not a... We do not function, as if you will, as a town of people who are all from here because most of us are not from here. It's about half and half. And God brings people here for jobs and for, uh, well, for jobs. That's what God brings people here for. And when God brings those people, some of them have faith backgrounds, some of them do not. Some of them see what it means to follow Jesus, others do not. Many of them worship, many of us, worship the God of success and the God of comfort. And God has given us a mission in the midst of that. It's in front of us. These are the last words of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? What Jesus says as he wraps up his time on earth are these words. I I don't know if it still works like this. I graduated high school in 1995. That means that I'm not Generation X and I'm not a millennial. I'm this small group of people, 1977 to 1983, who were born between those years, who fully understand Stranger Things. And I am what's called an exennial. And anybody else in that grouping of people? Okay, that, those are my people right there. Our people in the house. And, uh, but when I graduated, I had a yearbook that was there. Do, do they still do yearbooks in schools or do you just text each other? Uh, so I remember going around from person to person to have, to, for them to give me their last words. And there was the girl generic form of the last words. Um, Have a great year. Stay sweet, Jenny. That was it. And then there's the the friend who just is being realistic with you. Uh, I I have loved being best, best friends, but just know after May, we're probably never going to talk again. You are so awesome. Don't change. Kevin. And then there's the joker who signs your yearbook vertically and because he wants to be inappropriate. We know that person, right? Um, and then you have the, um, the person who you had a crush on, but they did not have a crush on you, and they feel their closing words to you should clarify how they feel. I, I love you, but not like that. You deserve someone better than me. I hope by having you drive me everywhere because I did not have a car that you did not get the wrong impression. I repeat, I do not like you like that. Hope you understand. Have fun this summer. 
So then we go to our grandmother to have her sign the yearbook. And she writes something really sweet. And she speaks ill of your handwriting. These last words, they matter though. Like you, you look at this, that, that's what it's for. What do these last words of Jesus say to us? What is Jesus attempting to communicate to us about himself? Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That word worship is massive, and I don't want us to miss the, the depth of it. When we talk about worship in the New Testament, when you talk about worship in all of Scripture... It is not that they opened up their hymnals or that they posted some songs on the screen. It's not that they had a a certain time that they gathered together. Uh, The word worship here, it, it means that they literally, they lay down in front of Jesus. Right there in front of Jesus, they lay down and to worship him. And, and that's problematic if you have come from a monotheistic word, world of Judaism because you don't worship anyone that's not God. You worship only the one true God, and if you worship anything else, you're worshiping poorly and wrongly. It's their first commandment. Do not have any other gods before me. It's their last commandment. If they forget everything else in their memory, they cannot forget this. You have one God. Yet these Jewish people who two days earlier saw Jesus crucified, they fall down in front of him throughout the Bible. We see numerous situations where people fall down in front of supernatural beings who do not happen to be God. And if you'll notice, in every instance of someone falling down in front of a supernatural being who is not God, that supernatural being says, stop. But Jesus doesn't say, stop. Jesus says, keep going. Jesus allows them to worship. We have numerous places where Jesus is worshipped, Matthew, and where people fall down in front of him, bringing us to this culmination in Matthew chapter 28. In the Gospel of Matthew itself, Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, a leper falls down in front of Jesus and he does not stop him. Matthew chapter 9, the daughter of Jairus was sick. Jairus falls down in front of Jesus. He does not stop him. Matthew 14, verse 33, the disciples in the boat... After Jesus calms the storm, fall down, and and he does not stop them. Matthew 15, the Gentile woman, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, the sons of thunder, which is a wrestling tag team, they fall down in front of Jesus. People fall down in front of Jesus over and over, and he does not stop them. So this lets us know that Jesus sees himself as God. And we see that the way that Jesus sees himself shapes our response. Some doubted, but most didn't. So, so let's see what we find. First and foremost, we see this. We are sent by Jesus' authority as the one to be. We are sent by his authority. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is not only worshipped as God two verses earlier, Jesus is claiming the authority of God. Yet again, he is making a statement that he is God. So what he is telling us as followers of Jesus is this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and when he sends us, he is telling us to declare his authority. 
Or his reign would be the word that we may use. No gospel writer seems to focus on... So here's the thing. Most of us as believers in Jesus have this subconscious idea that we will worship Jesus forever and forever on streets of gold and with pearly gates. And as long as we get to that side of eternity, everything's okay. And that's when worship will be in its fullest. But there is no gospel writer who seems to focus on waiting for the return of Jesus for his people to take him seriously. The mission given to us by Jesus is to make real in the world the authority that he has. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We are sent by his authority. He's actually already told us in Matthew chapter 6 how to pray in regards to his lordship or in regards to his reign. He says, pray like this. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we pray like this, we cannot be shocked that God would use us to bring God's answer to it. You are the declaration of the authority of God fully revealed to you in Jesus. We are not only sent by his authority, if you're a note taker, we are shaped by his design. So when we look through the New Testament, we see that Jesus gives us a pattern by which we follow and we understand what it means for us to be declaring his authority. And this is the sandwich that we see, his authority, and then we'll see what happens in a few moments where he says, and the way that my authority will be accomplished is that I'm with you. But in the middle of this, verse 19... Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Four verbs in verse 19. And men who are much more, have a much greater understanding of the original languages than me, they break this down and they will show you this. That the go takes you to the primary verb of the sentence, which is make. Baptize and teach are supporting verbs for make. So when Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that authority culminates in the followers of Jesus being disciple makers. So if the end goal of Jesus is for us to make disciples, if the desire of Jesus is for us to be a disciple-making people, are we finding ourselves as obedient to that? Go make disciples. Conversations about preaching are strange. People say weird things to you all the time, like they're not being fed. Uh, It's it's weird, and that's a weird thing to hear. Uh, One of the main reasons for that is uh, when we talk about not being fed, when you look through the through in life, who needs someone to feed them? Well, babies do, and sometimes people who are in Life situations where they cannot be fed. But everyone else, they they feed themselves. Other things that you hear, if you're a preacher or a teacher of the Bible or communicator or whatever fancy term people happen to use, sometimes people like to talk about, how do I apply this? Well, the Bible never has a word for application. 
Application is a watered-down way that we talk about obedience. The goal of God is for us to be obedient to him, not out of duty, but out of delight, as we talked about last week. But we're called to make disciples. Are we obedient to that? Do we have a love for Jesus that causes us to want to be a disciple maker? Well, where do we do that? We do that in our homes, yes. But it's more than that, right? If we look through the scriptures, it seems to be more than that. If we're talking about groups of people who had numbers added to them because of this message of Jesus, it's not just about your house. It may be about your neighbor. Oh, what if it's about your your friend across the street? What about the coworker who drives you insane? Go, make disciples. The phrase go in the original language, most understand it to mean as you go. So this isn't something that we simply do in instances where it pops up, though that does is part of it. But as you go, as you live your life, you are to be a person who makes disciples of Jesus. So if we're wrestling with what this passage says, we have to wrestle with this. Am I someone who is seeking to make disciples or am I not? Make disciples. What does Jesus say about making disciples? Does he say that if we love him enough, this will be simple? No, as a matter of fact, this is a phrase from Jesus about disciple making. Whoever does not, or about being a disciple, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So whoever does not see what is difficult that happens to be in front of them and chase after me anyway, you're choosing not to be a disciple. So you may be a convert, but you're not what Jesus would design for you to be. This has been thread into the disciples for three years. This idea of discipleship. We're shaped by that design. How do we see that? Because Jesus goes and he finds disciples. What are other things that Jesus uses to shape the way that we understand making disciples? Uh, Jesus tells them that they should baptize. And he doesn't just tell them that. The design that he sets before them is that he was baptized. So we see Jesus baptized... And then we see him begin to declare this public mission. So when we talk about baptism as a church, it's not just because we want to get people wet. Do you know how difficult baptism is in here? We drag a horse trough in this place. Water splashes everywhere. I'm 62% sure I'm going to get electrocuted one Sunday when we do. But we baptize because we want to take Jesus seriously. Baptism... It's the outward expression of inward transformation. It signifies in an outward way what it means to become a disciple. It is death to self. It is death to self-reliance. And it's a, it's, it's a making a claim that you have a new life in following Jesus. We even see this. That he says, baptize, and he says, you, you'll teach well, teaching is the inward impression that manifests itself in outward transformation. That we have taken what God says seriously. And we have taken the words of Jesus seriously. In such a way that it affects the way that we live. It's a major shift. 
Because Jesus just said, everything comes to me. If you're to read through the Old Testament, there are, there are two signs that, that were given uh, in regard to teaching and in regard to an outward sign. In the Old Testament, it's the idea of circumcision. And, and then it's the idea of the Torah. But Jesus has just said to us, in me, you find the fulfillment of all of that. Because down to the new expression of being a follower, and that's your, your baptism. Now there's a, a new means by which you are taught, and, and that's me. Learning to obey all that I've commanded you. What has Jesus taught us? Well, I can give you some examples of those. Uh, there's the great commandment. It's rooted in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's the idea of the love of the Lord our God. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's loving our neighbor as ourself. In John chapter 13, Jesus gives another command. He actually says, this is the command. A new command I give you. Love one another. They will know that you belong to me when you love one another. When we read through the Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of discipleship that Jesus has painted for us. Because of who Jesus is as the one who stands in front of us with authority, we see this. We now see all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus. As a result of that, that you would see the entire Bible through the lens of Jesus, I want you to hear me and I want you to hear me clearly. If our understanding of any scripture does not help us to be more like Jesus, it is a poor understanding of that scripture. The goal of the Bible is for you to live like Jesus. It is for your life to look like Jesus more than it did yesterday. It's not just for you to have things memorized, though memorization is part of that. It's not just so you can recollect when you're in difficult situations. It is so that we, as people who are of the faith, look and sound like Jesus when people see and hear us. Not only do we see that we are Sent by his authority and shaped by his design. Thirdly, we see this. We're sustained by his presence. Go with me. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I command you. Talked about that a little bit. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We are sent by his authority. We are shaped by his design. We are sustained by his presence. Matthew chapter 1, you see the culmination of much Old Testament teaching, much, much Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. There was a name for Jesus in the Old Testament, the promised one. He was Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. You've heard that, you've sang it. If you haven't, we will deal with that, I'm sure, in the next few weeks. And Jesus, who is the God with us, has now just said, and I'm with you always. God with us fully manifested is Jesus with us. So God has sent us with a direction. Sent us by his authority. And he's shown us what we're to do because of his authority. And now he says, you will accomplish this because I'm with you as you seek to fulfill what I've given you to do. 
the encouragement of Jesus for believers in the, is the exact same encouragement God used throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. We love to think how awesome we are. I don't know if you've ever thought about how great you are, but you probably have. And if you've never thought about how great you are, there is certainly someone in your life who tells you you're wonderful all of the time. And sometimes people use that for pick-me-ups. When we feel like we can't get something done or can't accomplish some task, oh, you're wonderful. And we tell people that they're incredible and that they're a perfect little angel and that there's no one like them on all of the earth. I was going to use the term snowflake, but I've abandoned that in the culture that we live in, the cultural climate. But we see throughout our world that people seek to be encouraged by people telling them that they're fantastic. When you read through the Bible, God never does that. Moses is with Jesus, it was with God, and I would even argue with Jesus at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The Spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And he's just told, you're going to go to the king of the world and you're going to tell him to let everyone go. And Moses begins to argue and make excuses. And he, he has all of these reasons that he cannot do what God has given him to do. And God does not stop him and say, Moses, have you looked in the mirror lately? Moses, you're a strapping young lad who's led these sheep to the middle of the, of the woods. Moses, you have a very distinguished old man beard as of five minutes ago. The encouragement of God for Moses, that he would accomplish what God has given him to accomplish. I am with you. God's authority, yes. But now we see that God's presence is there. Look, we can't do this. You can't do this on your own. You're not cool enough. We're not smart enough. We're not any enough. What, 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 Chad, you just pulled one out of the, the wood. Look, do you have any other examples? The rest of the Old Testament. But let me give you another. In the book of Joshua, Joshua said, hey, God, I can't do it. Look, you're telling me to go across that water. And Moses already went across one body of water. But I don't think I can do that. Joshua, you're a fantastic young man. No, that's not what he hears. You know what God says to him? I am with you. What is God calling you to right now in which you are forgetting that he's with you? I'm with you. I can't afford that. I'm with you. You don't know the dumb things I've done. I'm with you. I'm scared. I'm with you. As you go, I'm with you. Make disciples. I'm with you. Baptize and teach because I'm with you. Always, forever, forever, ever, I'm with you. Because Jesus... Is God with us? 
One of my favorite theologians says this as he talks about the culmination of the age and the idea of us making disciples to the ends of the earth. He said, bread, forgiveness, and deliverance are, of course, always going to be needed as long as this present world continues. But there will come a time when those needs are swallowed up in the complete life of the new age. When God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven and earth have been joined together in the new creation. When God's kingdom established by Jesus' death, in Jesus' death and resurrection has finally conquered all of its enemies by the power of divine love and went in line with the ancient hope of Israel. And now with the central intention of Jesus himself, the name of God is honored, hallowed, exalted and celebrated throughout the whole creation. Every time we say the words, Our Father, we are pleading for that day to be soon and pledging ourselves to work to bring it closer. So every time you say to God, I'm Our Father, you are saying, whatever you would have me to do, I'm going to do it. And that means that we live with our heads on the swivel. Because our neighbors and our nations have obviously not heard the message of Jesus. And it needs to be lived and shown and declared by people who say they belong to him. And by people who know that he's with us. I you to bow your heads with me this morning. Just so I and the elders know how to pray this week and our eyes are open because we have permission. If you're here and you would just say, hey, I'm, I, I've got some things that I believe that God has laid on me to do specifically, but I'm, I'm afraid to do those. Could you raise your hand? Could you raise your hand? Some people I know I need to talk to, some people I know I need to... Could you just raise your hand so I can see those? That'd be great. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. I am with you. So God sent us to our neighbors. Send us to the nations. Let, let us see what you put in front of us. And let us see that you have all authority over it being fulfilled. We ask all this in your powerful name. Everyone stands and says...